Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with jazz composer, arranger, and conductor David Berger. This prolific jazz ambassador is recognized internationally as a leading authority on the music of Duke Ellington and the swing era. Along with being an author, he's involved with dance companies, TV, film, commercials, and so much more. He was the conductor and arranger for the Jazz at the Lincoln Center Orchestra from its inception in 1988 through 1994, and he's transcribed more than 750 full scores of classic recordings, including more than 500 works by Duke Ellington and Billy Strayhorn. He's a deeply cool, truthful, and compassionate person, so get to know him and dig this interview, my friends. So, David, thank you for taking a few minutes to talk to me on jazz. I appreciate it. Happy to do it. Right on. So let me let me dive right in here and ask you about projects that might be going on and anything recently that you've been a part of, just to kind of get a handle on what's going on with you lately. Taking up a lot of my time these days is I write a blog once or twice a week, and also I've been writing books on on jazz. Um, the blog is is kind of about the intersection of art and life. And deals a lot with jazz, but uh, also other aspects. Uh, the books I have, uh, like, well, one book is um, Creative Jazz Composing and Arranging. And it's actually one, well, the first volume is out, and the second volume, which deals with uh, writing for singers, uh, that's, it's written, but it's not, uh, it's not out yet. And then I have a book for high school jazz band directors that came out recently. And I have a book that, uh, of my, Blogs. I, I put together 45 of my blogs. Um, they're, you know, they're short essays, and I put them in, in a book. Uh, I've got a couple hundred more that uh, ultimately will come out. Um, and I'm working on a book on Sibelius. Yeah, so I've got all those going on, and then I still have a big band. Um, we actually got 21 votes in the for talent, uh, what is that, emerging talent. I've been yeah. doing this 50 years, and we're, we're still emerging. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Um, we haven't been playing all that much uh, like we used to. We used to do about 60 jobs a year or more. But um, now we're, we do maybe one every month or so. And um, sometimes a little more, sometimes a little less. Uh, we've got a, a couple of nights at Dizzy's um, coming up in... Um, in New York, um, in, at the end of November, where we're going to be doing a program of the music of Stan Getz, uh, Jerry Mulligan, Al Cohn, and Zoot Sims. And I've arranged a lot of their small group records that I, I grew up loving uh, for our big band, and we're, we have a guest soloist, uh, Harry Allen, on tenor saxophone. So we've been re- rehearsing those. I wrote all those, and now I still I got one more to write. And we've been rehearsing those. What else? I do clinics with high school uh, and college jazz bands and also some guest conducting with um, professional bands like um, some in Europe and some around the United States. Well, I, I continue to compose and arrange new new pieces, some just for my band and some for other people, um, singers. I write for singers. I have you know, a, few, a few students that study with me either privately at home or via Skype. So I'm pretty busy. Yeah, without a doubt. Let me ask you about the beginnings of your life. Where were you born and raised? New York City. Okay, okay. Uh, I was born a few blocks from where I live right now. Let's see. We moved, we moved out to Long Island when I was little, 
and uh, about 30 miles from here. And um, but my family, the rest of my family lived in Manhattan. So um, and my father worked in Manhattan, so I spent a lot of time in the city. Um, I was very fortunate; I was able to uh, go to see Broadway shows, and and when I got a little older, to go to jazz clubs. Very fortunate uh, in the in the 60s to be able to see a lot of the the great jazz performers that you know my heroes and and then by the late 60s and early 70s I I started working with all of them so very very fortunate there. So was it just kind of a foregone conclusion that you were going to get involved with music based on the culture you were around and the way you were raised and how you were swayed by these artists? Probably not, but uh, I mean. My mother played piano, uh, amateur, just like at home in the afternoon she would, she would play some, um, she had her, her repertoire of classical pieces that she would run through and then she, and then she would, she had like a lot of sheet music of like standard songs and she would, she would play those and um, and I was just, uh, my earliest memory is just being totally fascinated with that and um, and wanting, to, and begging her to teach me how to play the piano. So I started playing when I was very young, and uh, she taught me how to read music. And um, then when I was in, let's see, third grade, they showed us a, a short movie in school with all the different instruments, so like Louis Armstrong playing the trumpet and Benny Goodman playing the clarinet and Yasha Heifetz playing the violin. And I said, if you want to play an instrument in school, you know, pick one of these. And... I knew Louis Armstrong because he he was always on TV. You know, like I, my grandfather would always watch Ed Sullivan show on Sundays, and and Pops was a, a frequent uh, performer on the show. And uh, my grandfather would say, my grandfather didn't know anything about music, but he would say, "Sit down and watch. This is the greatest musician in the world." How he knew that, I don't know, but it must have been pretty obvious. He yeah. loved Louis Armstrong. So when they showed us this film with Louis Armstrong playing the trumpet, I, well, I had to play the trumpet. So I took that up in third, in fourth grade, and then joined the band, the school band, in fifth grade. And then the first day of junior high, which was seventh grade, I was twelve. The band teacher said, "If you want to join the dance band, which was the jazz band, because we played for the school dances, come after school." And I had never played jazz before. I didn't even really, really know what jazz was. I mean, I knew what popular music was, which was pretty close to jazz. Some of it was jazz, some of it wasn't uh, at that time. But, you know, we're talking the 50s and, and like, well, this is 1961. So, anyway, I went to this rehearsal, and within a few minutes, I was hooked. Just the feeling of swing. I just, I got to do this. So my life was decided right then and there. Wonderful. You've been pretty prolific over your career. You know, you were, uh, and you, you're seen as one of the authorities on Ellington and the swing era, and you've conducted mm-hmm. for the Lincoln Center Orchestra. You've right. transcribed 750 plus full scores and classical recordings. I'm curious, with all of these different things that you do as a musician, as a conductor, a director, an author, and all of these things, how do all of these feed your head and who you are as a person? I'm always fascinated by people who don't like music. They don't. Music's not a part of their life. Like Donald Trump, you know, music has no has no place in his life. And people like that, I wonder, how do they get through life? It's to me, music is it 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 awakens your soul. It it um, 
it makes you a better person. It teaches you how how to empathize with other people, how to, uh, it just it gets us in touch with our humanity. And I get a, a large dose of this every day. I have this tremendous urge to, to share this, uh, not only share my the music that I write and play, but uh, the knowledge that I've gained. I, I want to give it to the next generation. I taught, for 30 years I taught the uh, conservatory, the uh, Juilliard, Manhattan School of Music, um, William Patterson, different New York City schools, and um, and I really uh, had I don't know thousands of students over the years, many of which have gone on to have great careers and have real famous musicians. I love passing this on because when I was young and starting out, all the you know the great musicians they just they just gave me all the stuff. You know they just were they were so generous in, in welcoming me into the fraternity and, and sharing all this knowledge with me. And I, I treasure that, and and I want to give back all that I've uh, that I've learned. My question to you is this: Also, growing up in New York City, being around it, you're kind of in a unique position. There's a lot of people that migrate to New York City, but you've been there. You've been on the pulse. Yeah. How healthy is jazz? Is healthy? Is jazz a very healthy organism still in 2018? No, the soil that jazz grow, grew out of. It's either depleted or it's non-existent. Um, when I was coming up, you could go to any local, you know, there were local bars all over the country where there would be a trio or a quartet playing standard tunes and, and guys improvising and playing jazz. And the audience would be school teachers, plumbers, um, housewives, all kinds of people, and they all knew the songs. Okay, I'll tell this, I always tell the story. When I was about seven years old, I was sick one day, and I was home from school. And in the afternoon, there was a quiz show. And on this quiz show, they would play three notes of a song, and then the contestant would have to guess what song it was. So they would go, ba da da And my mother would go, Stardust. And then they would go, uh, you know, every song, three notes, she got it. And I said, Mom, you should go on the show. You know all the songs. And she would say, everybody my age knows all the songs. Now, nobody knows all the songs, and they haven't known all the songs for the last 50 years. And that's the problem. If you don't know the songs, you don't understand the music. You don't know what we're doing. There was a brief moment where swing dancing became popular in the in the late 90s to the early aughts. And we used to play a lot for swing dancers in those days. And these kids would listen to all those old records and learn the songs. It was really great. And I... I remember the, the first. I, I, well, when we first started to play those those gigs, I, I, I thought, well, you know, if I'm going to if I'm going to do this, I should I should I'm not I wasn't a dancer, so I, I should take a few dance lessons and find out how to do this, learn how to do this, so that I could play better for the dancers. So I took this this swing dance class, and the first thing, so I'm in a room. I'm 50 years old, and I was in a room with with um, people that were barely in their 20s. And the teacher, who was also, she was probably in her late 20s, um, she started off and she, and she said, I know you're all listening to like all, and she named like all these pop groups. She said, but if you want to swing dance, it's Count Basie and Duke Ellington. And I, I'm thinking, God, I've died and gone to heaven. This music has come back. It's not like I want the old music to come back. It's that I want the tradition to be continued so that we can build on the past. 
I write plenty, plenty of modern music as well. I mean, I guess I do some gigs where we play for swing dancers, and it, it has to cater to that. But I, I do a lot of modern things too. That I, I like the the entire history of jazz, and I want to. But the thing is, the continuity. We have to, the soil that it came from, the culture that existed at that time in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. That's that's gone now. People don't uh, walk down the street to swing eighth notes anymore. Yeah. When I was growing up, you heard swing 24/7. Even the, the commercials on TV were swinging. Yeah. And, uh, and and that doesn't exist anymore. It's a straight ace world, and um, and there's very little melody and harmony that uh, that people hear. Uh, I'm always amazed that there are, that there are, there's a steady stream of young kids. They graduate from college and they come, or they, they come to New York to go to college, either one of the young people, and, and they come, and they're good players. They come to New York and they, there's, but there's no gigs. There's hardly any gigs anymore. When I was growing up, there were, there were jazz clubs all over the place. Yeah. Uh, and you could see, on any given night in New York, you could see either Camp Basie or Duke Ellington. You could see Thelonious Monk. You could see Dizzy Gillespie. I mean, all these great, all, you know, uh, they were all here in one night. My friend uh, uh, Aria Hendricks, John Hendricks, the jazz singer, his, his daughter, who's also a jazz singer, she was born the, the day that President Kennedy was shot. And she kept the, uh, the newspaper, she kept, kept the New York Times from that day. And uh, that's about 20 years ago we were, we were talking one day, and she said, yeah, so I have this newspaper, and I and I, I just I was looking through the newspaper, and there was a listing of all the jazz clubs and who was playing on the, on the day that I was born. Everybody was playing, all of our heroes. You know, there's there's still a couple of dozen jazz clubs, but they're they're not thriving, and and you can't make a living playing in clubs anymore. They don't pay enough money. Do you see maybe that history is like a carousel? You know, what goes around comes around, and it may stop back. Do you have a sense that we're going to get like with that revival in the late nineties? where we're going to get to a place where people are going to be tired of electronic process music that computers make and want human beings that know scales and harmony to get back into it. I thought so. In fact, when I was growing up, so we're talking, you know, 50s and, and early 60s, and there was, it was right after this great period of the, the 20s, 30s, and 40s where popular culture and fine art, a lot of it, there was a lot of overlap. Duke Ellington was popular. Orson Welles was making popular movies. Picasso and Dolly and uh, uh, you know, uh, Jackson Park. These people, they, they were, they were popular, and it was great, and it was fine art. And I thought, ah, this is the way the world works, and it's going to continue forever. But that ended. Uh, what happened was that there was a, a youth rebellion. Well, it was, it was created by Madison Avenue. They, they sold America on this idea of the uh, uh, generation gap so that people, the, the baby boomers, and there were tons of us baby boomers, they wanted to sell products to us. So they convinced us that our parents were, were full of it and that we should not trust them and we, should, we shouldn't listen to their music, we shouldn't read their books, we shouldn't uh, like anything that they like. We shouldn't dress like them, we shouldn't speak like them, we shouldn't do anything like our parents. And so sophistication was out. Anything that had any, that hinted at sophistication at all uh, was to be shunned. Enter rock and roll. Things have, have progressed from there.
Yeah. So that's the problem. And how to overcome there might be a moment where, where something becomes, uh, there's a fluke and something becomes popular for a minute, but do I think that it'll ever come, that, that we'll ever have an era like that again? I don't know. I think we're in a dark age. Our, our government is in a dark age. The whole world is, is plunging into, into a, a, a dark age. And um, I don't know if we can stop it because there's a lack of education. I don't know. Do kids, do kids read Shakespeare in school anymore? You know, my generation was the first one to not learn Latin and Greek. Now, I don't know if kids even learn English. Yeah. I don't know what, I don't know what they're learning. I mean, I've got two granddaughters that are, uh, are 12, and um, they're really brilliant kids, and they read all kinds of stuff. And I wonder, they're coming to New York to visit me, and I'm going to take them to, to Shakespeare in the Park, and I'm going to take them to see Carousel and My Fair Lady, and... and, uh, and well, they, they they hear my music because I send them my CDs and they go, oh, Grandpa's music, you know. But yeah. stuff that they hear in their everyday life is, you know, it's not it's not going to nourish their soul. I'm sounding very negative, I know that, but on the other hand, every day I fight windmills, you know. I'm constantly I'm constantly pushing jazz out there and 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 trying to make trying to just put it before people because I think. I think that if people are exposed to jazz, they'll love it. Yeah, it's so contagious. We for t- for three years we played every Tuesday night at Birdland, and we get all these these tourists would come in, and I would see like there would be all these like men who were like jazz fans, and they would bring in their wives and and who weren't particularly into the music, and I guess that's kind of stereotypical, but mostly jazz fans are guys, and um, especially of that generation. So. You know, the husbands would make a deal with the wife. I'll go to Bloomingdale's with you in the afternoon if you'll go to Birdland with me at night. So they come, and we start to play. And I notice by the by the end of the first tune, and certainly by you know by the time we end the first set, the wives are totally into it. Everybody leaves happy. So oh, I didn't know I liked jazz. That's great. And so yeah, we try to make the music accessible. We don't want to turn people away. Yeah. My uh, girlfriend is a uh, second-grade teacher, and when she puts jazz on, it's disinfectious. And half of these kids don't even know what it is, and they just go. They like it. They move. And it's swing era. It's Duke. It's Count. It's it's the good stuff, and they love it, man. It's you know, and and they are totally mystified by Monk. You know, when he comes up and he's doing what he's doing, because even to this day, it just doesn't sound right. But it's the best sound in jazz. It's like wow. What is that? You know, it's like a spaceship landed and just left a box and stuff for people to listen to, you know. So well, well, we would play, like, you know, outdoor concerts, you know, like in the summer you play park concerts. And, stuff. and then there'd be a lot of adults, but then there'd be some kids that would be, like, up at the front. The kids would always be dancing to the music. Yeah. Uh-huh. Because the music has a dance impulse to it. And the kids don't know how to dance. They just jump up and, and, and they uh-huh. got to move their bodies to the music. Uh-huh. You, you know, the adults are too... Um, Embarrassed to do that, but uh, although we play a lot of swing dancers, and 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 that's I like that. That's that's very gratifying. But let me ask you this: in general, you've done so much. You've been so prolific over your career with so many different things, from being, you know, in, in charge of the Tr- Detroit Jazz Festival, uh, working with dance companies. There's been such a diversification that you've done over your career. There's been so many levels and 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 parts of it, and it's prolific. So my question is this. At this point in your life, are you happy with how everything's turned out? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm very thankful for all the 
the things I've gotten to do, but I still have a lot of projects that are I've dream up all these projects and I still I want you know I want to do board game best. I want to do I got a couple of musicals I wrote that I need to get staged. I I got a dance piece that that um that that needs to uh, be choreographed. Uh, I got a lot of a lot of projects. I'm not uh, unhappy with what I've done. I would say I'm you know, very thankful, and and when I look back on the stuff I've done, wow, that's amazing! That's what great opportunities I've had. But I hope I live long enough to do all the things that uh, that I dream of. Uh, a friend of mine ran into Billie Jean King, great tennis star of, you know, she's older now, and he and he asked her, "How do you feel about getting older?" And she said, "Well, the thing is, when I die, I'm going to be really pissed because there's so much more I want to do." Yeah, that pretty pretty much sums up how I feel. Every day, I don't I don't sleep enough because every, I wake up early and I have a million things I want to do. I I can't wait to get to work, you know. Because I always got new music in my head and I, and the urge to uh, to create it's at least as strong as it was when I was when I was starting out. Why do you love jazz? The first thing that grabbed me about jazz was the rhythm. It just made me feel happy and and joyous. And as I got to learn the music, then I I got oh okay the melodies I learned all these melodies I love all these melodies I had to learn them, and then and then I got into the harmony. Um, you can most jazz musicians they get trapped in the they spend they spend ninety percent of their time figuring out the harmonies and they don't they don't you know what they don't spend enough time on the rhythm which is the most important thing. But I I'm fascinated with harmony. I'm always discovering uh, new things and orchestration as well. I, I try to find new sounds. Overwhelming thing is the rhythm of it. When it, when the rhythm feels good, when we're playing in a club and it starts to swing, all of a sudden it's like, man, the universe has totally lined up. And there's nothing like it. And I can feel it. The whole, the whole, everybody in the whole room knows it. It's, it's, an, it's really the power of jazz. It's amazing. It is. Let me ask you this. Everyone has a version of you, your family, your friends, your fans, but you know yourself best. So who do you think you are? <laughs> yeah, well, there's parts of me that that very few people know. I don't know how people see me. I mean, I, I, my students, they would say, well, he's pretty strict, but I'm really glad that, I mean, they, they all, well, a lot of the ones that I see, you know, after I run into it, like in airports or whatever, or on gigs, and they they just, they thank me for for teaching them how to listen to music, basically, how to hear music. I see myself as a teacher and as a, as a father and a grandparent. I think that's a large part of my life. I like to give. I just wrote a I just wrote a blog actually um, a couple of days ago. It's the latest blog that's that's on my. If you go to www.suchsweetthundermusic.com. Um, uh, and then you click on blog, there's a free blog that you can sign up for. And uh, if you like jazz, you probably will be interested in a lot of things I talk about. Well, in this particular blog, I talked about my aunt, who she took me to jazz clubs. She took me to see Count Basie, the first band I ever saw. Uh, she bought me all kinds of jazz records. and I mean, just, anyway, she just loved to give. And I thought she was crazy. I said, nobody gives you anything, and you give to everybody. And she says, it's 
I get more pleasure out of giving than receiving. And I thought she was nuts when I was young. But now that I'm older, and especially since I became a parent, I totally understand that. Yeah, I like to give, and I, I like um, I just like to surround myself with with good music. But I like all the other arts, too. I'm, I'm a big fan of film, and uh, I've seen a zillion movies, and I've worked on a bunch, and that was that was a lot of fun. Dance, I've worked a lot with dance companies, I like that, and um, I read a lot. And baseball, I'm a huge baseball fan. David, thank you for your time. Keep up the fabulous work, man. Oh, well, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York, Kansas City, and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to David for his cool, his music, and his time. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino in the iTunes Store, visit NeonJazz at YouTube.com, and for everything Neon Jazz, go to the NeonJazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.